The Defense Department has a new approach to talent management when it comes to its ever-expanding cybersecurity workforce. Officials hope to once and for all get past their recruitment and retention challenges, and the department released its cyber workforce strategy late last week. For details, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. And Alexandra, let's start with the strategy. What's all in there? Well, last March, the Defense Department announced that they were going to have this cyber strategy, but it really wasn't fleshed out at all. It was more of just an idea. And they said, in the future, we're going to give you all the details. And last week, the Defense Department rolled out the fleshed out, all the details version of the cyber workforce strategy plan. It laid out four goals, and then it has a series of objectives to go with that. And the idea is to just do a top-to-bottom overhaul of the way they manage their cyber workforce. The goals are establishing an enterprise-wide talent management program and then creating an assessment and analysis process so that they actually have a way of of measuring whether they're doing a good job and what they need to do differently. And they're talking about an entire cultural shift in department-wide personnel management. They, they need to do it differently if they're ever going to accomplish their goals. And finally, to develop partnerships with industry and with academia so that they have the ability to really train people and bring in outside sources of information for those people. Uh, The DOD held a press conference on Thursday. Mark Gorak, the DOD Chief Information Officer's Principal Director for Resources and Analysis, said the plan would be a paradigm change for the department. He explained what the Pentagon had in mind with the new plan. We will measure and monitor progress on a set battle rhythm, holding ourselves and our executing organizations accountable. To recruit and retain the most talented workforce, we must advance our institutional culture and reform the way we do business. We are breaking the mold of the past and changing the way we identify, recruit, develop, and retain our cyber talent. Well, I guess that remains to be seen, but what are some of the specific challenges they are facing here? Is it just pay? Is it getting people to stay once they join? It's all of those things, Tom. The workforce is about 225,000 people, about 75,000 each as civilian employees, uh, military employees, and contractors working in the cyber workforce. And the department needs to find ways to bring in new talent. Not all of those positions are even filled. And so they're looking at new sources of talent, maybe new way to recruit people. And they say that each each of those different groups of, of employees need different recruiting methods and different training methods. So I think the force is growing. Uh, today, we have about a 24% vacancy rate. In our plan, in the first two years of this plan, we're trying to reduce that about in half. On the military side, we actually don't have a problem recruiting in the cyber workforce because the military provides the training and, and education to train you in this, and then they provide you the experience. So then the problem is retention. On the civilian side, we have both a recruiting and a retention challenge. Again, that was Mark Gorick, the uh, DOD CIO's Director for Resources and Analysis. And did he discuss the issue of developing the people they already have? He said they're supplied by the military kind of automatically because of that job function in uniform. But what else are they going to do to develop the civilians and so forth that they do have in place? That's right. With the military, they kind of have people they bring in through the recruiting process that's in place, and they're able to train them, and then they have that force. For civilians, they they either have to get people who are already trained in the civilian world, which is tough, or find ways to train them. And part of this whole plan 
has a lot to do with the way they're going to train people. They're going to start new programs. They're looking at a lot of field experience, a lot of probably hand-on training activities. In fact, they want to start a fund. It's called the Cyber Workforce Development Fund, which would jumpstart some of those training programs. The catch there, though, Tom, is that they don't have a way to fund it yet. They say they're, they're going to figure out how to get the money for it as, as they go along. And they, so they also plan to do programs where they do exchanges between industry and the defense department so that people get some experience out with industry and they can maybe pull some people in. And they really want to open the door to people who leave DOD being able to go to industry and have an open door to come back in and work for the government again. The initiatives we put in place to go after this, you know, K through 12 reach, reaching out, getting kids interested in STEM, uh, and then all the way through the whole human capital talent management pipeline to get to actual outputs of people who are qualified and want to serve their, their, their country. So we have a lot of initiatives in here with exchange programs, with uh, private industry, as well as with other public entities, other federal agencies. Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, earlier we mentioned that he is looking to, in some part, fill that pipeline from people leaving the uniform services and coming into civilian services, which is a path a lot of people in uniform do. They become civilian employees for the department. But they're having recruitment problems on the intake, and the Army and the Navy and the Air Force are not meeting their recruitment goals in the first place, so that could be a problem down the line. How else do they plan to compete for talent given the pay scales and so on, and the fact that industry is clamoring for the same types of people at the same time. Honestly, I think that's probably the biggest problem that they face is the fact that, yes, people can go to industry. But Mark Gorick lists a lot of programs that they're able to have that will maybe entice people to come. Uh, they, they have the ability to serve their government, of course, and then they have certain benefits they can get just through the, the military or the, the Defense Department. And one of the biggest tools they have is cyber accepted service. It allows for a pay rate that's more commensurate with a candidate's experience in the civilian cybersecurity industry. And it allows the DOD to hire people maybe at a higher pay rate than their regular scale. So far, though, they've only done this with about 15,000 employees. So one thing this, this talent program wants to do is expand the cyber ex accepted service so that they can bring in more people through it. Here's Mark Gorick. And we have cyber accepted service within DOD where we can actually pinpoint through work roles that are critically short and incentivize them with even greater pay. And also, we already have the authorities today in general to provide what we call the three R's, you know, relocation, retention, and recruitment bonuses, which can relate up to 25 or sometimes up to 50% of their base salary. So we have those authorities today. Now it's a matter of getting the word out and actually utilizing those authorities to maintain and attract not all of our talent, but the best talent. So it sounds like they've got a pretty thorough strategy. Now, like he says, they have to go out and just do it. They have to go out and do it. And there's a lot of, well, we need some funds for this and that. And it'll be interesting to see when they throw this back to Congress, what happens as far as them getting the funds they need to do all these ambitious plans. Yeah, especially if there's a year-long continuing resolution. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. 
As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part 
Okay, I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.